0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. this is Detroit today
1: the 90s were a time marked by hip-hop and grunge comedy about nothing and a booming economy we also had politics that while not necessarily better We're not as bitter as it is currently. Coming up on Detroit Today, we discuss the cultural impact of this decade with Chuck Klosterman, author of the new book, The 90s. Take you back to that time to remember the music, the politics, the culture. It's all coming up next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, feeling in for Steven Henderson. How do we give time meaning? These little moments passing from one to the next, how do we attribute significance to them? How do we tell a story that includes all of those seconds? One way we do this is to separate time by decade. We mark certain dates and events that happened, and then we string together a story about what it meant to live in a particular time period. I don't know how useful or true it is to give time meaning by separating it into decades, but as humans, as Americans, we do this a lot. Writer Chuck Klosterman recently did just this. In his new book, The 90s, Klosterman talks about what it felt like to live in a time period that still had a cohesive mainstream culture, to know that it was okay not to know things, to be cool by doing nothing at all. The 90s were a time marked by hip-hop, grunge, comedy about nothing, a booming economy, and a politics that, while not necessarily better, was not as bitter as it is today. To talk about this and more, we have Chuck Klosterman here with us. Chuck, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Hey, it's great to be
1: here. You noted in the book, again, the 90s, that decades start with a cultural perception and not time. So I ask you this, when did the 90s start?
2: Well, okay, there's obviously the the answer we would use if we were talking about calendars, right? We know that there's a date that begins in January 1st, 1990, and ends at the end of the decade. There's also sort of the historian's view, which has become that it really begins with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ends at 9-11. But because I did more of a cultural history, um, I actually use uh, 9-11 as the end point. But I use the release of Nirvana's Nevermind in 1991 as sort of the inception point because it's during this point or at this kind of hinge moment where I feel like almost the caricature and the cliché of the 90s, the way we remember that time period kind of becomes immutable. So when I think of when the 90s began, I'm thinking fall of 91 until September of 2001. That's not, of course – perfectly aligned with how we measure time but you know culture doesn't read a clock culture kind of goes by moments
1: exactly and i'm glad you're not married to the clock either it's more important to hit those moments hit those flagpoles and uh, when i see a title like the 90s i gotta say chuck i said all right i'm gonna read this book it's gonna tell me about the 90s this is it this is the book i need to know about the 90s i think that's a, a pretty pretty strong title what were what were you trying to accomplish with this book
2: well, that's a that's a good point because you know titles do matter in that in that way in the sense that they give the reader a sense of what their expectations should be. There was a, a point where I was considering writing or, or calling this book the American '90s with the idea because so much of what the book is really based only around the culture of the U.S. Um, there was also some thought of maybe using some kind of phrase that would. I don't know, kind of encapsulate the the general um, uh, social feeling of the time. But the fact of the matter is the 90s is the title that the book should be. Because what I am talking about is how we um, sort of frame periods of time, not necessarily perfectly around dates, um, but around atmosphere and texture. I mean, what matters about the 90s, of course, are all the events and all the people. But in terms of one's memory – it is the texture of that time, um, the sense that there was a period where being a 90s person sort of defined uh, your identity to a degree uh, in terms of what you considered important, what you viewed as um, uh, sort of a core component of how reality should be viewed. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, by calling it the 90s, it it, it, it maybe moves the goal proposed further away, right? It, it sort of suggests right. that um, this is something that, Uh, is going to explain everything to everyone. And, of course, that's impossible.
1: But, you know, I did my best. (laughs) It is a good book, and we're going to get into some of the specifics you talk about here as we're speaking with Chuck Klosterman, writer of several books, best-selling author, and the author of the new book, The 90s. But before we get into that, one of the interesting points that I think you make in the book is that you argue the 90s were the last time we had a cohesive mainstream Uh, culture together. Can you explain that to folks who uh, might be interested in picking up the book?
2: Well, when we think of the culture now, uh, I'm saying right now in the present tense, um, sort of the key term is the proliferation of it, how it has been splintered by the Internet, by cable television, by the different sources uh, of media that people get the news, the idea that you can almost exist in your own separate silo, where you consume the things that interest you and make sense to you. And somebody outside of that silo is almost living in Russia or living in China. They have almost no relationship to the experience you're having. The nineties was still uh, the world of a monoculture where there were only, you know, uh, you know, four networks and PBS. Uh, The media institutions were limited. The news cycle was limited. Um, MTV and certain radio outlets still had a lot of control over uh, what the average person was able to hear on any given day uh, and sort of dictated that sort of, uh, like, the commercial side of music. So in the 1990s, you could say to yourself, well, I'm not part of mainstream culture, but you were still forced to be aware of it. You were still forced, basically, to, uh, you might view it almost as oppressive, but whatever the mainstream culture was in whatever genre we're discussing was, was kind of imposed upon you. So even people who were disconnected from, say, a TV show like Seinfeld or disconnected from Nirvana or, you know, disconnected from the movie Titanic, maybe, maybe they had no interest in any of those things. They still had a deep familiarity with them because uh, they were almost inescapable. And uh, as a consequence, there was more of a kind of a shared language. These major things that happened during that period almost work like connecting fluid uh, allowing people to sort of at least feel as though – they have maybe diametrically opposed but still shared views on what reality is like. And uh, that has kind of ended now. And you know, uh, part of the reason I was interested in reading about the 90s is not just because it was the last decade of the 20th century, but in many ways I think it was the last decade, at least in terms of how we had traditionally used that term. You know, the idea that there's a chunk of time roughly – uh, beginning at the beginning of a, of a numerical decade and ending at the end where um, you could look back at and say like, well, these are the things that that sort of categorized how it felt to be there. I think that's going to be increasingly impossible moving forward in time.
1: It, I think that's very interesting that you bring it up because I, I remember Friends. I didn't watch Friends. I wasn't interested in Friends. It might be uh, dangerous for me to say that live, but I knew of it. I knew references to it. And, um, when talking about the book, I was speaking with my colleague, fellow producer here, Sam Corey, and we read it differently. I read the book, the 90s, kind of like, oh, OK, this is what a mainstream culture view of the 90s was like, because frankly, a lot of the things in there, they weren't that interesting to me. I didn't listen to a lot of grunge music then. Meanwhile, uh, my colleague says, oh, I kind of read like nostalgia for me. Right. It took him back to a certain time. Uh, were you going for either one of those perspectives when you wrote this book?
2: Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, I, I, I left these two perspectives because they're both interesting. The thing that you say um, is uh, you know, somewhat trenchant because you're saying you didn't watch Friends, uh, and yet you still had an understanding of it. That's partially because any random episode of Friends, any random episode, draw, almost just drawn out of a hat, was seen by more people than the finale of Game of Thrones. So even these things that were just sort of um, – uh, almost kind of disposable pieces of the culture because um, we were operating on a different kind of magnitude, a different scale. These things were very sweeping. So somebody who didn't watch a television show like that could still have an understanding of, oh, well, that's Chandler or that, you know, like these, these faces that they saw on the show became familiar almost by default. Now, what your friend said about nostalgia to me, I mean, that's, that's both, you know, it's fascinating, but also a bit troubling, right? Because to me, uh, sometimes people conflate the term nostalgia with simply remembering things. Okay, to me, nostalgia means you're looking back on something from the past, and because you had a specific emotional relationship to it, you're changing your memory of the thing. So, just using friends again as an example, if somebody's, uh, you know, met their wife or their husband uh, in 1994, and one of the things they used to do is watch Friends together. They may remember the TV show Friends having a different kind of significance artistically or aesthetically than it actually was. To me, that's nostalgia. Nostalgia is almost misremembering the past to fit into your experience. And to be honest, I very consciously tried not to do that with this book. Like, my idea was I need to separate myself from that time because I've written, a, you know, it's just the 12th book I've written. A lot of them are about things from the 90s some of the things in this book I've written about in the past, but that was always through my subjective experience. I tried to get outside of that because I realized going forward, there's going to be a lot of people writing about this time period. It's going to become very popular to write about the nineties just because that's the way history works. And I think it's going to be increasingly subjective. It's going to be increasingly people who are looking at their own life or what's important to them or what they view as sort of uh, maybe significance to uh, the person they are in the present and injecting that back into the past. So, what I was trying to do is almost write a kind of I mean, it kind of sounds arrogant, but almost like a foundational text. It's, or like, these are the things that were sort of understood to be the 90s.
1: Yeah. Now, I, I think that's a good yeah. idea, right? You want to take your shot, right? Uh, do the best job yeah. that you can. I mean, I, I would hope you would go for that, but continue your point.
2: Well, no, because there, you, 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 I, I could have done it very differently, right? Instead of writing about Nirvana, I could have wrote about not James addiction. I almost did that. You know, instead of writing a lot about Quentin Tarantino, I could have written about a director, maybe, who had a, a lower profile at the time, but seems more influential now. Instead of having a huge section on Bill Clinton, I suppose I could have written about Hillary Clinton, even though she wasn't president. She was. You know, I, could, I could have done it in a way that would have made it, I guess, perhaps— more interesting to a scholar. But what I'm not really trying to do that. What I'm trying to do here is sort of be right, you know, be accurate. Because so much in my, in my previous writing, it was almost like, I don't care if I'm wrong. I just want to be interesting. I want to be entertaining. That is the key. And I still hope this book is interesting and I still hope it's entertaining. But like, kind of like you referenced earlier, by calling it the 90s, it kind of demands a kind of a different kind of rigor in a way. Like it couldn't just be what I want. It has to be sort of, well, for somebody who was there or wasn't there, this will seem reasonable, you know?
1: Yeah. And I want to get into some of the defining characteristics that we all share or think of when it comes to generations, especially the 90s. But for those of you listening out there, before we do that, what do the 90s mean to you? Did you have a deeply memorable moment from the 90s? Were you coming of age at that time? Uh, What was it meaningful for you? And alternatively, should we be categorizing decades and generations in a different way? Is it Foolish for us to even try. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, so we can work you into the conversation we're having here about the 90s. And I think when a lot of people think back to the 90s, Chuck, You think a lot of those sounds, uh, grunge music, which we'll get into, uh, but you have a great reference in your book to, for example, a lot of people think of 90s, they think of that show, My Soul Called Life, life as being defining of the 90s, even though it only ran for one season and Friends was much more popular. Uh, It wasn't as enduring, or grunge music, it lived in an isolated time in the 90s, didn't necessarily move to the next generation or have the impact that hip hop has now. Uh, Why is it that things like grunge music that's my so-called life. Those things are so defining to the 90s uh, for so many people out there.
2: Well, I mean, to a degree, exactly what you just described is the answer. If something kind of moves outside of its original time period, it becomes, you know, I mean, evergreen. It becomes timeless. It becomes something that isn't a period piece. It's not attached to um, sort of what was happening at the time of its creation. Whereas a show like My So-Called Life, which only ran one season on Thursday nights against Friends, got hammered in the ratings, uh, a movie like Reality Bites, um, you know, a band like Alice in Chains, uh, like uh, um, uh, so many things now that when we think about them, they seem like they could have only existed or come you know, to power, if we're gonna use that word, at this time because of sort of what the youth culture and the youth mentality was. Um, you know, Some people have said to me, like, well, why didn't you write about The Simpsons, right? You know, The Simpsons really peaked in their fourth and fifth season. That's in the heart of the 90s. But The Simpsons has existed continually since, you know, the early 80s when it was on the Tracy Ullman show. It is outside of time. If you're going to write about a decade, what you're really looking for are things that reflect something specifically about that period. Um, so when you say, why do some things – you know, you know, not keep going, it's almost because they weren't meant to. Like uh, if you put a lot of emphasis on capturing the present tense, you're basically saying this is only going to make sense for people who understand this sensibility. And when this sensibility changes, these things about it that initially seemed real significant are going to seem dated. So if, you, if someone watches my so-called life now, it's almost going to seem funny at times. When you know, Buffalo Tom comes on and plays or the way Angela Chase dresses or like the way Jared Leto acts, all of these things, they're going to seem almost cute and charming because they're going to seem so out of step with the teenage reality of now. But from my view, that's what makes it important, the fact that we can understand the past through this thing whose only goal initially was you know, to sell advertising.
1: All right. Well, we think about the 90s, then we think about eras about how or why they were distinctly different from other eras, then based on what I'm hearing from you. So tell me about the 90s. What is so different about the 90s? uh, Now, what's defining for the 90s based on you reflecting back and writing this book?
2: Well, okay, you can look at, in some ways, in contrast with the 80s, where we came out of this period where um, there was, uh, you know, the idea of of uh, personal autonomy became important in the 70s. The, the 60s with this idea of we're going to have a revolution. Culturally, it failed. Uh, we move into a you know, we now call the me generation when people are like, well, what about me? You move into the 80s where we really reward the aspirant. Um, the idea of making money, being successful in the biggest possible way, in almost a kind of carish way, became very acceptable the nineties is the swing back against that. And I, I mean, it's, it's tough because, you know, you know, we're talking about these things as if they're universal when of course they're not for a lot of people, all of the things that we talk about generation X or talking about the nineties don't really apply to them, even though they lived through it. Um, but there was a belief at least in the media that the young person of the nineties w- had Lost interest in the idea of sort of having their existence be part of society. That there was, it was time, it was a time when it was acceptable to sort of, not necessarily drop out, but sort of step away from the idea of what had always been considered kind of conventional success. And, you know, when we talk about a generation like Generation X, um, the things that tend to categorize that is. Almost their disinterest in the commercial values being opposed upon society, even though those influences were constantly expanding and constantly getting more profound. In fact, many of the things that we associate with the 80s didn't really come into fruition until the 90s, like bank deregulation and um, a lot of the things that we think about as sort of purely corporate ideas, Gordon Gecko type ideas. Those things really sort of you know, matured and came into uh, prominence at the end of Clinton's second term. So, I mean, it is confusing. I mean, I guess if I could answer your question in 90 seconds, I probably wouldn't have needed to write a book. <laughs>
1: Excellent point. A book does give you more time to get into your points. And uh, we've got phone lines still open, 313-577-1019. Join the conversation. What was defining for you in the 90s? Why was that important to you? What do you think is the defining characteristic of the 90s? What do you recall about the 90s? You can get in on the conversation by calling us as well. Um, I have a clip that I want to uh, play for you because you argue – in the book, uh, and just kind of mentioned it just now, that to be cool in the 90s, you weren't really supposed to care very much. We have a clip right now from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that gets into this. I want to see how you react to it.
3: Can't believe it's school like three miles away. It took us 45 minutes to get home. I know, sweetheart. Those traffic jams can be so frustrating. It wasn't no traffic. It's Carlton's driving. It was old people in walkers passing us. <laughs> Look, the fact that I'm safety
2: conscious does not mean I drive like a little old man. Carlton, please, George Burns flipped you to Bird. He was waving. The man has arthritis.
1: Here, Will drives fast. He doesn't care that much about life. He's not like his uptight cousin Carlton. Uh, this, this for you explain what cool is like in the 90s.
2: Um, not really that's an interesting clip to have selected because well that that seems like a pretty almost uh uh like a like a universal dispute between two young people one person who to drive fast and one rider right drive slow i think what i was uh, trying to suggest more was you know like let's look at the modern world right in the modern world we the assumption is if you are a uh, engaged person you are going to have Opinions that you are also probably going to express very often in a social media context. You're going to have ideas about Ukraine. You're going to have ideas about Trump and Biden. You're going to have um, ideas about uh, Billy Eilish. You're going to have ideas about uh, you know uh, uh, the, you know the current contemporary state of television. And the expectation is that you're going to share these ideas and that. Quite possibly, you're going to try to imply that your justification for how you feel, particularly the morality of it, is something that is socially correct and that you want other people to accept it. What was the, the idea of being cool in the 90s was the antithesis of that. It was that you didn't have to have an opinion on things. You didn't have to be engaged with things. What we now sort of pejoratively look at as like, almost an apathetic disinterest in the world at large, was more like, here's an opportunity for you to think about your own life. I right. mean, that, that, that's what I think is when people are, you, know, you mentioned nostalgia earlier, if people are nostalgic nostalgia about the 90s, what they tend to be nostalgic about um, are not really the things that they mention when it comes up in conversation. I think what they're nostalgic for is the time when it just mattered less. Like, it mattered less to, you know, to, that, that who you thought was an important musician or what you thought was, a, you know, uh, the, the best novel of the 90s or, or the way you felt about the rising kind of world of the Internet. These things were your own ideas. They weren't necessarily a reflection on who you are and who you felt and where you kind of fit into the hierarchy of culture. So when I say it was, like, cool not to care – in some ways, what I'm really saying is it was cool not to demand other people to care about what you thought was important. And that seems to, have been, that seems to be lost. We don't seem to have that as much
1: anymore. Oh, that's kind of refreshing to me. You're taking me back to a time, Chuck, but uh, we still have more Detroit Today coming up, including Mark and Ross Township. We're going to Ross, uh, Ross Township. We're going to get to you uh, as Detroit today continues in just a moment. Well, that'll wake you up a little bit on a Friday as you're listening to Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, and we're speaking with Chuck Klosterman, author of the book The 90s, the decade that brought you songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana. And before we get to our next phone call, I want to remind you to get involved with the conversation. You can call us 313-577-1019. Let us know what was defining for you about the 90s? Did you live through it? What are the cultural touchstones to you about the 90s? Why do you feel like it's different? It's like no other decade that we have out there. Uh, Right now, we've got Mark in Ross Township. Mark, you're next on Detroit Today.
0: Hello. Hello. One of the defining things I think of me for for me from the 90s is that uh, it was the time before really before the internet took hold. But most of all, it was the time before cell phones, Um, when we were truly free. um, They called a cell for a reason, but, um, you know, you'd have an answer machine. If you didn't want to call somebody back, you didn't have to, you know, you didn't answer the phone. You didn't have to answer the phone. Um, You were truly free. And nowadays, it's we're all narcissists. We're always staring at our phone. And, you know, if you want to look something up, you can look it up in 10 seconds on the phone, but you forget it immediately in the past. You'd go to the library, you'd spend a half a day, you'd learn something, and you would memorize it. We memorize phone numbers, um, our memories change because of it. I think, you know, I think that's one of the big takes for me from the 90s, besides, you know, just, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, you know, I, I definitely was not part of society in the 90s, I still don't feel a part of society today.
1: You know, I can understand that, not being tied to everything. I remember when I booted up my computer and I would hear this sound you've got mail and i knew i could just get to it whenever i wanted there was some freedom there chuck what do you think yeah, about you know, that, Mark's that, point
2: that, go ahead no, that college that, that just said was uh, there's a huge chunk of that in the book I'm, I'm really glad he brought it up it is you know probably the most Profound individual change for the individual, I'm saying, from say 1990 to 2000 is the relationship to the telephone. Um, and it's not just because almost no one had a cell phone in 1990 and virtually everyone did moving into the 21st century. There are just so many parts of this that um, are, are, are sort of kind of fascinating and, and easy to ignore. Um, you know, We often worry about cell phone addiction now. That's a very common thing to hear, people who cannot live without their phone. I'm the same way. If I can't find my phone, I sort of lose my mind. And yet, in a way, the landline phone imprisoned us more. If you really needed a phone call, you just had to sit in the living room and wait. Like, the phone could not move. The phone was your home. In fact, your residence was defined by that telephone. And yet, within this world, where the phone actually had more control over how we lived. Um, We thought of it totally differently. It was just an appliance. It wasn't that different than the dishwasher. Like the the idea of buying a new landline telephone every other year, that would have seemed absurd. Um, The internet, of course, comes up in the nineties. 1995 is a very key year because Craigslist starts, Amazon starts, all of these things happen. But what I think the caller... uh, kind of reference which is very true is that even though in a future like in a distant future we may look back and say well the internet was the most important part of the 90s in the 90s itself you could still live alongside the internet with almost no relationship to it like it became more difficult near the end but certainly in the early and middle part of the 90s if you weren't interested in the internet there was no consequence because at that time The Internet just seemed as a way to sort of make easy things slightly easier, getting driving directions, getting recipes, finding pornography, running your fantasy football league. Like These are the things the Internet was doing at that time. It isn't until social media, which doesn't come until the 21st century, that it starts completely misshaping and warping the experience of being in America. And now we tend to look at the current way the Internet works and assume it was always that way. But it wasn't. The internet was different in the 90s.
1: It's so true. I, I was the guy who did the Fantasy Football League. I had to make all of the charts, and then the internet comes along, and now I'm not as valuable anymore. It made me so feel it, a little well, bad. I don't even know about value, but like I, I ran a Fantasy Basketball League in the early 90s. Every Tuesday,
2: I would have to get the USA Today. It right. would have all the team statistics and subtract every player's, you know, exactly. Week week, it's, I can't believe I did it. I would <laughs> never do it now. But at the time, it was the only way to do it. So you're just like, well, I like basketball, so, yeah.
1: we have got to do it. Mark, thank you again for your call. That was such an excellent point. And now we move to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, you're on Detroit today. Go Very ahead with topic. your comment. I
0: think one thing that really uh, exemplifies the 90s was the Seinfeld show. Uh, a show about nothing. Everything we did daily, they would make fun out of it. Yeah. And uh, uh, the only thing that bothers me about the shows, and you watch these, these sitcoms, is the canned laughter. Uh, don't tell me when to laugh. If it's funny, I'll laugh. Uh, I don't know if you ever watch Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, and he was one of the producers of the Seinfeld. His shows has no canned laughter.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. That was a change between the 90s and the current time. But, Chuck, you get into a lot about Seinfeld in your book, including referencing this clip that we have here.
0: I think I can sum up the show for you with one word, nothing. <laughs> nothing? Nothing.
3: What does that mean? <laughs> the show is about
0: nothing. <laughs> All right, tell me, tell me about the stories. What kind of stories? Oh, no, no stories. Well, why am I watching it? Because it's on TV. <laughs> Not yet?
1: That's a clip from George pitching a story with Jerry Seinfeld to an NBC executive. And you make an interesting discussion about this. Can you talk about Seinfeld, the show about nothing, and how that was defining for the 90s, as you mentioned in your book?
2: Sure. Okay. So now, the idea of Seinfeld being about nothing. So Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, I think that they're very troubled by that uh, by that sort of understanding of the program because i think in their mind that was a joke they were putting in and they didn't think it would become this defining characteristic i think in their mind the show was always about something um the key though is the george costanza character pitching this television show about he and jerry's life okay now on one level it's interesting because this is sort of what postmodernism is the idea that Characters on a TV show, we want to make a TV show about their fictional life so be a fictional show inside of a fictional show. But the point that Costanza is making there, that's really the 90s point. His argument is that people are going to watch the television show because it's on the television. And that is sort of how television was perceived in the 90s. It was entertainment for when nothing else was happening, which was most of the time. Um, you would see shows That would be like, say, Veronica's closet would be put on Thursday night after Seinfeld and suddenly 40 million people would be watching. it. Then it would move to Monday night and nobody would care. The idea of having a television show succeed simply because it was next to a pre-existing show and people were too lazy to turn the television because the stakes were lower. That was a very valid way of promoting something. We don't think of TV in that way now. We use terms like prestige TV binging TV, the idea that you can't talk about a television show freely in public because it might spoil something for somebody who hasn't seen episode seven, even though you've got all the way to episode 10. These are things that would have never been discussed in the 90s. In the 90s, you could love Seinfeld, you could love Friends, you could love any of these shows. But if you missed an episode, you just missed it. Like maybe you'd see the rerun. If you didn't see the rerun, you'd see it in syndication. But the idea that any of these things were essential. Uh, that is a kind of a projection and fabrication that we've come up with over time. And what it really shows is the difference in how seriously people now take the unreal. You know, the, 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 you, you'll sometimes hear about this idea of parasocial relationships, the idea of someone who feels like a character in a TV show is their friend, Well, you could have had that relationship in the 90s, but it was considered strange, and it wouldn't be something you'd talk about. It certainly wouldn't be something you'd define yourself by. And that is a difference, yeah. You
1: know? I think that you are right. And thanks again uh, so much uh, for your call there, Harry. That was a very interesting point. You know, uh, when you mentioned that, I see a prevailing theme of the stakes being lower. And then I also think about your comment about parasocial relationships. But there was a culture of fan club. them. I mean, for example, the Batman movie comes out and the amount of people that wrote about uh, who they were choosing to play uh, as Batman. I guess that's technically 89, isn't it? But y- you still had that kind of era of people, just these mail-in campaigns. I can't believe Michael Keaton's going to be Batman. So maybe there was somewhat of that, but just not as uh, high of scale you as we know, have and now. W- w-
2: what you're describing, though, is, is kind of true fandom. The person who, was, who saw Batman sort of as the key to uh, their sort of understanding of culture and entertainment, what you saw less of, was somebody who did that with whatever we're talking about today. Right. In other words, it's like like somebody whose fandom sort of moves from whatever is in the culture at the moment because they want to be involved in the discourse. That's something that someone can now do, choose to be part of the discussion. Um, So now the idea that every time a Marvel movie comes out, I'm going to have a strong opinion about it. Or um, every time – Where all this, you know, White Lotus comes out. Uh, It's the popular television show during the pandemic. So I have my take on it. That's kind of what I'm talking about. There was always somebody who was obsessed with a specific thing. I mean, or Beatle Maniacs, you know, in the 60s. But the idea that someone's life is built around being enthusiastic or angry (laughs) about whatever is happening, that is an extension of social media that did not exist before that
1: period. We've got an open phone line right now for you. Get involved with the conversation. 313-577-1019, talking to Chuck Klosterman about the 90s due to his new book, The 90s. And I am very happy that we have Matt Ferndale on with us next. Matt, go ahead with your point. Matt, are
2: you there?
3: Hi, yeah.
2: Um, I, uh, I was born in the late 80s, and I grew up in the 90s, and the, I did not really think too much about the music of the time because it was in the ether, but going back to that time, I'm really struck by how the 90s was the last period of sort of disruption I feel in the music industry. We had a lot of stuff going on uh that became consolidated in the early 2000s and into today. So, you know, you had sounds of all the alt rock where they're incorporating jazz and noise and avant-garde stuff and and some of that's happening today in the in the big mainstream but it just doesn't feel like it's as, uh, big.
1: Uh, you raise a good point, Matt. In terms of your point, uh, N.W.A. is coming out around that time, alternative hip-hop, something that I would know about. Uh, because of commercialization, of course, the music industry controlled a lot of the music you get out there. If you do want some interesting uh, music, I would recommend you listen to the WDET shows on the weekend because there is a wealth of creative things happening. But, Chuck, you did get into kind of music uh, in your book. Can you go ahead with your point on what the caller says? The 90s, the last time there was really a disruption in the in the creative industry of music
2: well i mean the 90s saw the, kind of the the key disruption which was napster i mean that was really when, when everything changed what the what the caller i think is referring to about the early half of the 90s particularly which was a very fertile time for music um in retrospect we didn't realize it at the time but the sort of the commercial underpinnings of the music industry were in many ways good for what that caller was looking for because Everything was separated by labels. A label could basically say, we do experimental jazz music, or we do, you know, uh, like touch and go, the label, and, and you know, we, like we do a certain kind of um, kind of like heavy distorted rock or whatever, um, you know. And when Napster happens and we move to a streaming model, what we really lost, and this isn't necessarily tragic, it's just different, is that we lost tangible music subcultures. There are still subcultures on the Internet. But, you know, if you look at somebody, a teenager in the early 90s, they had a limited amount of money to spend on music. So if they go out and they buy a Nine Inch Nails album and they listen to it and they like it, they can't just decide, well, I'm just going to move on to something else. I'm going to try to get something that's going to sort of connect me to this last record. I'll buy Sisters of Mercy or something. Next thing you know, they're shopping at Hot Topic. Uh, they're buying black eyeliner. They're suddenly a goth person, right? They kind of accidentally became goth because they happened to buy a record that isn't even necessarily goth music. That is kind of over because now that same kid would be like, "Well, I downloaded this Nine Inch Nail song. Now I'm going to download a Shania Twain song. Now I'm going to download a um, you know a, 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 a Public Enemy song. I'm going to just sort of like almost have like this this uh, almost unlimited well." I mean, technically, unlimited bandwidth to sort of experience and taste every kind of music I like. Now, for the kid, that's a real benefit. They have a wider palette of the music they experience, but it makes the music matter less because it's not existing outside of itself. It's existing only as a sound file. It's not existing as a culture of shared ideas, whereas like for me growing up in the 1980s, I only listened to metal, okay? I only listened to Kiss and Guns Roses and Motley Crue, and so it was the only thing I would listen to. And as a consequence, my ideas about um, art and all these things were sort of shaped by the music, the musicians, my peers, and more so the limitations of living inside that smaller world. Um, The world got bigger because of Napster. Uh, It didn't make people like music less, but it did make music mean less because it kind of reverted back to its state of just sort of temporary art.
1: It's an interesting point, and Matt, I uh, appreciate your call here, which means also that we have another open phone line for you right now, 313-577-1019, talking about the 90s with Chuck Klosterman. And uh, Chuck, I do want to get back into music with you, which we will do, and Roger and Troy, we will also speak with you. Remember, give us a call right now. If you're interested in the 90s, what were you doing during that time? We still have time to talk to you, and we will do so next as we continue on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we speak with Chuck Klosterman, the author of the 90s, about his new book, The Meaning of the Era, how we remember it, how we define decades. And one of the things that you mention in the book about decades is how it's uh, very common for a generation to look back 20 years prior uh, to uh, reflect on that time. In fact, uh, one example of that you mentioned is, of course, the Smashing Pumpkins song that we just heard uh, from 1996. It's called 1979. Don't really hear anything <laughs> that distinct about the 70s in it, but the title just says it all. What is it about the 20 years in the past that you think uh, makes people reflect on that era?
2: Well, that just seems to be uh, like it a, a, must be some sort of a, almost like human nature to uh, have an interest in the time period that uh, kind of just predates your memory. Like in the 1970s, there was high interest in the 50s. You know, Happy Days was on, Laverne and Shirley, Greece was big, um, you know, American was 3D. These were all these things were happening. Right? We move into the 80s, and there's an interest in the 60s, um, you know, family ties. Uh, popular show, or or like uh, 30-something. The Big Chill, I guess, is the ultimate example of this, where people in the 80s were thinking about the experience of what it meant to be someone of the 60s. So in the 90s, we had that experience with the 70s. But because it's the 90s, and because there's so much ironic distance, it's hard for um, that sort of feeling to kind of cohere over time. Initially, it's like people are rebuying the Led Zeppelin box sets, You know, they're kind of dressing in 70s fashion again. The black crows are popular, you know, but then sort of morphs into this thing where the appreciation of the 70s becomes distanced, like aesthetically distanced. Like there's that Brady Bunch movie that is either like we can't tell if it's sort of making fun of the Brady Bunch or sort of reminding people that they used to love this. A song like 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins, it definitely feels like, this is something that's re- that it has to do with reminiscing or remembering, even though it's not specifically about I- any music or thing that happened in 1979. The greatest example being That 70s Show, which is, could you know, if you change the way the kids dress and you change the things they're talking about, you can place that show in any decade. It's just a sitcom, but they look like they're going to a party themed around the 70s. They talk about Pong and Star Wars and Gerald Ford. This interest in the 70s throughout the 90s was less about getting back to this idea of what it would have been like to live there and almost more about the stuff of the 70s, which seems far superior to the stuff that was coming out in the 90s.
1: It's really interesting uh, how when you talk about a book like the 90s, the 70s can have such an impact on that, uh, which you get into in your book and as you just discussed. But right now we have Roger in Troy. Roger, go ahead with your comment. Good morning. How are you? Doing well.
3: Um, on.
0: I have not had the pleasure of reading your book, but I'm definitely going to get a copy and read it. I'm a baby boomer, and
2: I was wondering in your book, did you address the fact that
0: talk radio became more and more
2: prominent.
3: I used to drive around lots or listen to talk radio and a variety of hosts that had different topics, different personalities. And then suddenly out of the background emerged this guy called Rush Limbaugh, who seems to have had so much cultural influence that I genuinely believe the last four or five years that we suffered through is a direct result of that. What are your thoughts?
1: The divergence of our politics did come up in your book, but go ahead, Chuck. Please take the call.
2: No, uh, you know, that's actually something I wish I would have written about more, um, which is that in the 90s, the role that talk radio played um, from a kind of a conservative right wing perspective is almost very similar to the way Twitter and Facebook and TikTok operate now for the left. Um, there was people, Rush Limbaugh being the, the, the prime example of this, where there was sort of this culture of we can build these talking points. So we can kind of build these reactionary ideas, and we have a real base for it. And we can build this audience who will listen to this show. I think I think Rush's show was four hours a day, I think. Yeah. And they'll, they'll listen to parts of this show and then go out in the world and sort of reiterate those talking points in much the same way that if you go on Twitter now, you'll see – uh people sort of expressing usually you know pretty aggressive leftist ideas that are then sort of co-opted by the mainstream media now i didn't write about that too much but i'll admit i did not i, I kind of stayed away from radio just because i had to make some choice
1: that makes me really into, sad the,
2: yeah the, I mean, the, the, the point the guy makes is great though i mean i remember when i moved to akron ohio in 1998 every day i was work, i was working at the akron beacon journal newspaper and every day at noon, I would go out for lunch and listen to the Jim Rome show, which was this sports talk radio show. Um, for you know, that was on for like three hours in the middle of the day, and it had its own language. You know, it was this interesting thing, and and I suppose those things still exist, but they don't have kind of the juice they had during that period. But that's uh, that's a. That's a Very insightful call from that
1: guy. It really is. And Roger and Troy, again, thanks for calling up and being part of the conversation today. I listen to Jim Rome and all of his clones. I kind of think of like Stephen A. Smith and the talking heads that you have now, maybe as an extension of that, right? Because Rome became famous for having his interaction with the quarterback, Jim Everett, where he tried to do that thing uh, on TV. I mean, the thing
2: that Jim Rome really did, though, is in, in many ways, that kind of invented the way the sports Internet operates now, things like dead right. spinning, and things like that, yep. where, where, the, where the consumer mattered as much as the host, like trying to pair it back. I think it's a clone, as you said. That's what Grom always called his fans. Like, like the idea that we, we sort of start this idea, and then it's your job to sort of piggyback on that until it seems as though we have a consensus.
1: Exactly. We've got Kim in Romeo right now. Kim, you're on Detroit today. Go ahead with your point. Ken.
3: Oh, I think it's like Kim. Is it, you're talking
1: I Kim? may have accidentally, but you're Ken and Romeo, and now is your time.
3: Yeah, yeah gotcha. Yeah, I just want—I'll well, make it real quick. I can talk all day about it, but I, I yeah, it's just the uh, internet. I think you know, before the internet, you know, there was a mystery when you go to see live bands, or you know, when you were really wrapped into an artist, you had the music they released, and you had a live show, and that was all that you got, and you know, there was just. Uh, like you were saying about the Nine Inch Nails record, you know, it was just it influenced the uh, culture. You know, you could get sucked into the album and it kind of influenced you in a way that's just not there today. It's just so, so watered down. It waters down everything. I'm a heavy metal uh, artist myself and I dress up like a wizard. I call myself a wizard storyteller. And, you know, nowadays the people with their cell phones, they can catch you off stage out of costume or something like that. And it kind of waters it down. It takes the mystery away. You know, before that, if you were to come on stage and see somebody dressed up like that and performing this crazy heavy metal show and you had their record, you had that bit of mystery that was there. And you could really hit home and people that were into it could really get sucked into it as opposed to just the uh, Internet just kind of watering down everything. And I think it's just it kind of destroyed the music industry and and, and for the artist, in my opinion. Uh, at least back when the internet started, it did, I think. Uh, Ken, and- I,
1: I think you've raised a really good point. In fact, it, it crosses over not just with music, I think about professional wrestling, for example. Maybe the 90s is the last era where there were some people out there who really thought that was uh, real or didn't understand, you know, if something't uh, in, were into the storylines more than what was happening uh, off stage or uh, any other number of cultural touchstones. Uh, really great point, Ken, and you do get into this in your book, uh, Chuck.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what the caller is sort of talking about in many ways was already said in the 1980s with MTV. There is some – like, what he's saying is not wrong, but it's like this is not. the 70s were the last period. A great example, like KISS. Like, the idea of no one knowing who KISS was that could not happen now, that could only happen in the 70s. The idea that, like, people – would wait for Led Zeppelin to come to their town. And if they missed the Led Zeppelin show, all they had were records and like a few pictures in Korean magazine or whatever, you know, had to imagine what it was. Um, that, that, that period is over the wrestling thing. I don't know if people viewed wrestling as, you know, if there was a higher percentage of people who thought it was real, but certainly the way wrestling works now, um, it, it sort of accepts that, That these individuals are not controlled by uh, what we see on TV. That they, you know, John Cena or whatever has a life outside of that. Uh, All these people have a life outside of it. The 90s probably were the last period where wrestling will be as popular as it was, say, like during that like Steve Austin period or whatever. Is that part of the changing of technology? I suppose because everything is.
1: That's a really good point again, and thanks so much again, Kent, for your call. That's a great point that you brought there, and thanks again for calling Detroit today. You know, Chuck, when we think about the 90s then, overall, when someone picks up the book, what do you want them to take away from it uh, in terms of your writing and what your message you were trying to get across?
2: Well, you know, I I really only care about three things. I mean, there are a million things that are important about writing and
1: important about books,
2: but... I want to be interesting, I want to be entertaining, and I want to be clear. I want them to be interested in what I'm talking about. I want the experience of reading it to be fun, and I want them to have a clear understanding of what I was arguing. So that's what I think about. I mean, you know, it's it, that may sound reductionist, but that's how it is. You know.
1: No, I think that's a good point. I, I, I'm glad you do that. I think you accomplished it with this book. And I thank you again for taking some time out of your day to join us here on Detroit Today. Thanks again, Chuck. My pleasure. Uh, That is going to do it for us here on Detroit today. You're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. The show is produced by Sam Corey and, and me. I help produce it also. Joan Isabella is the program director. Uh, the technical director and engineer is Matt Trevethin. Detroit's Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Tune in Monday when we'll talk about Juneteenth and what the creation of that national holiday tells us about our politics and culture. Thanks so much again for joining us and we'll see you Monday on Detroit Today.